join with me in prayer as we come to God's word this morning. Our Father, we thank you because we need you every day. We need the word of Jesus every day as our daily bread. For man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so recognizing that, we ask for your help now. I ask for your help to speak clearly. I ask for your help that uh, the words that I speak would lift up our eyes to Jesus in light of what you're teaching us here. Uh, Lord, we ask for particular clarity into our cultural moment, into our personal lives, or that this would not just be something that we hear with our ears, but that moves our heart to be in line with your heart. Lord, I need that help and we need that help this morning. So help us, guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What a text we got this morning. Are you excited about it? Not just a little controversial in our uh, cultural moment. And yet, isn't it great that the Bible speaks? It speaks. It speaks to right now. Isn't it amazing? I've been fascinated. Uh, I try and stay conversant with the news and what's happening in our culture. And it is fascinating because these topics are hot right now. And isn't God good? He gives us this very text to help us understand how to live in our particular time. Now, this message multiplied as I was preparing it this week, and so this is part one, and we're going to get part two next week on this same text, because there's a lot in there, and I just recognized as I was preparing it how significant this is for our cultural moment, how many people are speaking into this space, how each of us are feeling cultural pressure that you know, these Christians believe certain things. There's a lot of words being thrown around and particular you know, hot events that are happening from time to time all around this country in relation to men and women, gender roles and sexuality, all those kinds of things, and particularly the Christian perspective on these things. So this week we're going to lay a foundation. Next week we're going to build on that foundation. This, and like a foundation in a house, you don't actually see the foundation once the building is built, but you sure need one. Right? Without a foundation, you can't build the building. And for many of us, we don't know what the foundation for the Christian life is, particularly when it comes to men's and women's roles within marriage. And we are under enormous cultural pressure right now to find the Christian view as abhorrent, abhorrent, as distasteful, as not the way this country is progressing. And yet this view, which has been upheld as the, you know, the highest of honour to men and women in a covenant of marriage, has been flourishing for more than 2,000 years and will continue to do so. But we need to know how to respond to it. Now, uh, I want to open uh, this beautiful perspective. That's what we're looking at, a beautiful, beautiful perspective of marriage in our text today as we go through the book of 1 Peter. And that's what we do here, by the way, if you're new. Uh, we just go through books of the Bible for the main part in our diet of the teaching of God's Word. And we look at, well, what does it say? And when it comes to particular topics, we open them up and look at them. Now, this week we're looking at a beautiful perspective, but I wanted to illustrate the idea of perspective by looking at operating systems for computers. 
operating systems for computers. This might be over the head of some, but that's okay, although most of us do use them. Some of us use the Mac operating system, those of us with a higher understanding in life. Some of, yeah, that's right, I'll get that one in. Some of us uh, prefer Windows, for those of us who prefer a more vanilla view of life. And, but some, but some, the real extraordinary people like something called Linux. Most of us don't know what Linux is. And most of us think of those who would use such an operating system like Linux as a very strange person with a strange perspective as they look at their various apps or whatever they do on Linux. No one really knows with this open-sourced glory that is the Linux operating system. And many people, in fact, most of us in this beautiful country of Australia, look at Christianity a little bit like Linux. We're not on the same operating system. It seems foreign and strange, but it's a very good metaphor for our time and place because Christians are on a different operating system to the rest of the world. When we, when we look at our lives in the world around us, a bit like on our computers and the applications on it, we have a different view and perspective, and it comes from God's word. And so we should expect to be different. We should expect to not go with the cultural flow, whether it's pushing us to the left or to the right or whatever direction you might see the culture is going in. The Christian perspective is often counter-cultural and it has been. It stood the test of time over the last 2,000 years to be counter-cultural. Now, I've read some uh, fascinating articles, as I said earlier, on this cultural moment when it regards Christianity and the views of men's and women's roles. And there's a lot of um, uh, different media coming out of it. One is a documentary about a sect or a cult uh, in, on the west coast of New Zealand called Gloria Vale Christian Community. Gloria Vale Christian Community. And documentary, make, documentary maker Fergus Grady says this about the group. He says, I don't fully comprehend how brainwashed and how indoctrinated they were. They were, it says, in another world. If they were born in the community, they had no concept of what was happening outside the gates of this pro property, let alone any news or current affairs in the world. Now, it's, it's fascinating just having a, an insight into this group in Gloria Vale uh, in New Zealand because they all wear uniforms. The men and the women have particular uniforms that they must wear. They're kind of like the Amish a little bit, except they have a website, as it turns out. So they're not full Amish, but they're a little bit Amish. And the expectation of our contemporary culture is that if you follow the Bible, that's where you're headed. Do you feel it? Do you feel it that the current conversation in our culture is that if you are a biblical Christian, you are a fundamentalist or an, been used a lot in the media recently, uh, an extremist who holds extremist views and are heading down the track to Gloria Vale. That's the prevailing sentiment in our culture. Now, I'm not going to unpack that too much, but I just want to say that I think many of us feel that way when it comes to reading the news or listening to it or even interacting 
in the world around us. This is commonplace for us today. It's a fear that we might have. But the first thing I want to share with you is there is a great beauty in laying down fear. There is a great beauty in laying down fear. We see it in our text talking about the holy women of God. And holy is a word meaning set apart. They're different. They're distinct. It says in verse 6, And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. There is a fear amongst the world and a fear perhaps in Christian hearts that if we stay true to God's word, we're going to end up like them. But there's a far better path. But it is a distinct path. It is one that is separate from the world but still in it. You don't have to wear a uniform to be a Christian, but you do look a whole lot more like Jesus. So what is in this beauty of laying down fear? Well, there's a few fears that we might have when it comes to actually obeying the text here. It talks a lot about the relationships that, men, that husbands have to wives and wives have to husbands. Now, again, we must take this in context. It's referring to marriage. This is not all women ought to be subject to all men or vice versa. This is within the covenant of marriage. But this is important for all of us, firstly, because it's very topical in our time and place. But secondly, the themes here affect Everyone, no matter where you are on the spectral, the spectrum of single, married, divorced, widowed, whatever. So it's very important for all of us to look at. So what fears arise that might stop us from looking at the beauty of marriage here in the text? What are the fears that are frightening that are referred to here? Well, I think in our particular culture, and particularly for women who are looking from the outside or perhaps from the inside at what Christian marriage is, ought, to, ought to look like, have the fear of losing their independence. What does it mean? Verse 1, it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Or place yourself under their authority. Now, this is not to mention uh, here immediately, but it does mention earlier, that we have this beautiful picture of Christ serving the church. And so that is the picture of servant leadership we are to see in husbands. But it does say that wives ought to be subject or to come under the authority of their husbands. But for many of us, for many women, we fear losing our independence in a culture that values, highly values, uplifts independence. Secondly, we fear looking foolish in a culture that is very materialistic and values personal freedom above all else. If you say, I believe this as a Christian, if you say, this is what my marriage ought to look like, this is what I'm striving for, do you fear looking foolish amongst people in our culture today? That would be very commonplace. Thirdly, there is the fear of being on the wrong side of history. Have you heard that term recently? Being on the wrong side of history, as if we know what history is going to look like in the future because we can look back at every generation and say what was wrong and I'm sure the next generation will look back at us and tell us what was wrong with us. But this assumes that there is a judgment, of course, and there is. The Bible tells us, in fact, just earlier, talking about him who judges justly in uh, chapter 2 and verse 23. There is a judgment coming. And so we can agree that there is a right or wrong side of history to be on but it relates to a person. The fourth fear is a fear of being stuck in an unhappy marriage. That is a fear. 
that if you buy into the Christian idea of marriage, you will be stuck in subjection to a domineering husband. That is a legitimate fear that many have. And fifthly, the fifth fear that we may have that is frightening is that God won't really look after you if you trust him at his word. I think that's the main one. And in fact, I think that one affects all the others. A fear that God won't really look after you if you trust him at his word. It's a fear. It's a fear. Where do these fears come from? A journalist, Nikki Jamel, uh, who writes in the Weekend Australian magazine, talks about the biblical Christian views, which she calls fundamentalist, but she says this, Many young people look on in bewilderment and revulsion at values not of their world. Let me say that again. Nikki Jamel says, Many young people look on in bewilderment and revulsion at values not of their world, referring to biblical Christian marriage and the views thereof. Now, I want to say I agree. Because these views are not of this world. Christianity has a different operating system because we have a different God who grants us this perspective. Think about it. What rules the hearts of our world? Public opinion? What you'll look like in front of others? Your feeling of self-worth? The fears that you have, perhaps? We've mentioned the fears that are frightening within our culture. Perhaps the idea that your personal freedom is the most important thing that you could ever stand for. And yet the Bible has a very different view on these things because we have a God who upends the world, who turns the tables and says, the very thing that you value most, I give through sacrifice and obedience. The very thing that you're looking for, freedom, is found in binding your life in subjection to, under a God who gave up his freedom for you in Jesus it flips all these ideas on their head and says there is one better way to find what you're really looking for and it comes from Him. So we can agree that these views which seem bewildering to the young people of this generation perhaps, although I see many young people here, oddly, these views which seem bewildering to the current generation are actually life-giving to our deepest human needs. There is a secret source in this text to a life-giving, thriving marriage because I tell you, getting one man and one woman together in a lifelong covenant where they are to love and serve one another, as it says here, that is a miracle. Yeah, come on. Isn't it? It's a miracle. And so where do, who do miracles come from? come from God. They come from God. I want you just to, just to mention these holy women. It's a beautiful term, verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Now, the idea of holy I've just mentioned earlier is the idea of set apart. These women were different to their culture 
always. They were different to the culture. Always, Sarah, who's mentioned here, fell into the cultural trap of feeling that her self-worth came from her bearing a child. And that's why she had the mess up when it came to Hagar and their son Ishmael. Did it not? What was the pressure? The pressure was from the culture. It was from the outside in. You're only of value if you have a child. But God said, no, you have value because you're made in my image. You don't need to perform for me. I'm there for you always without you needing to perform. But she stumbled. And yet she is a standout, a holy woman of God because she remained faithful to the God who was faithful to her even through her sins. That account, which you can read about in Genesis, is very messy. It sets a trajectory in this family for strife and opposition. And yet God works through people who mess up, who get consumed with fear that they're a failure, fear that their life hasn't added up to what they thought it should, to the pressures of the outside world that you're only valuable if you do this. I mean, the pressures today are incredible upon women. You have to be able to have children if you want, be able to succeed in a career if you want, be able to manage a household and be happy about it and post on social media about it, all at the same time. You're being pulled in every direction and to be happy and to be fulfilled and to be strong while you're doing it. What enormous pressure. What enormous pressure. And yet there is a better way. And it's by not buying into these things. Though some of those things are not wrong in and of themselves. But to be a holy woman is to be not caught up in the fears. So there is a great beauty, a holiness in laying down fear, firstly. But secondly, there is a great beauty in taking up courage. In taking up courage. Eric Metexas, who is a biographer, just had a throwaway line in a book I was reading, but I loved it. He says this, We live in a world where every flower is a cut flower, disconnected from the source of life. We live in a world where every flower is a cut flower, disconnected from the source of life. There's beauty everywhere, isn't there? You can see it outside on a lovely day. You can see it in a flower. You can see it in a human being. You can see it in a son or a daughter, a grandparent, a husband or a wife, in a marriage that's endured the years. You can see beauty everywhere and yet there is a taint. There is a sense in which it's not fully as it ought to be. It's like a cut flower. And it's everywhere. Everything good has a sense that's missing its true connection from the source of life. Now, there is a great beauty in courage to actually go, I will take the Bible at its word and do it. There is a great beauty in it. But the only way to access the power source, the life-giving source, like any cut flower, is to be bound to the root system, to be bound to the life-giving source. Where do we find 
that life-giving source. That life-giving source is from God. All this text is founded that the people that are to do this, to live this marriage where honour and respect, where godly servant leadership for the husband and, and submission from the wife are a beautiful union of an equal partnership with different roles, distinct roles, working together, that God will be honoured, working on the internal person, the hidden person of the heart. We're going to look at that a lot more next week. It's a beautiful phrase. That's the focus of this, not outward appearance. What sort of courage? What does courage look like in this text? How is it beautiful? First kind of courage is to be subject to your husband for wives in a Christian marriage. The idea of subject, again, is to put yourself under, to trust their leadership. This, of course, means that husbands must take the initiative or lead. What does this mean? This means a husband taking responsibility for the welfare of the family. This is not just spiritual, of course. This is all-encompassing. This is not about personality either. You might be an introvert or an extrovert. Wherever you are on the spectrum, this is about the husband in the godly marriage saying, I will take responsibility for the welfare of this marriage and this family. And the wife is supposed to encourage that. The husband is not to domineer, of course. We see that in verse 7. But they're to live with their wives in an understanding way, not using their physical strength, which is mostly the case with men, though not always, to domineer. Not using perhaps the cultural conditions, which men have had for most of history, right? Most of history we've lived in male-dominated cultures in the centres of power. Not always, but mostly. And so men could use that to their advantage, could they not? To domineer, to control, to use ungodly means. But it's not supposed to be like that because the one we look to as our model for leadership is Jesus. Jesus who loved and served us. Jesus who gave himself in love. Jesus who humbled himself by becoming a servant. We see that beautiful picture of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. That is what the leadership of a husband ought to look like. And so a wife is supposed to have the courage to be subject to her husband's leadership. This is difficult though, right? Because husbands are not perfect, let's be honest. And it makes account for that. It says even if they don't obey the word, you're still to be subject to them. But this means that you must be obeying the word. This means that first, you're in subjection to Jesus as a Christian wife. Second, you are in subjection to your husband. The only way that this works is if you are first under Jesus. Because there's a great tension living with a sinner. There's a great tension when your husband isn't being obedient to the word. To honour him, to love him, but you can't go along with everything he does if he's not being obedient to the word. And that is an enormous tension that all of us face. And yet there is still a way, just like we heard about last week, just like in when the government isn't doing the things that they ought to do to honour them, whilst perhaps not agreeing with them and in some cases disobeying them. 
It's true in marriage also. So there is a great courage to be subject to your husbands in the narrow path of honouring God at the same time. There is enormous courage in seeking to win your unbelieving husband. Now, this goes both ways, of course, for um, believing husbands with unbelieving wives, but it just mentions it in this context. And anecdotally, my experience is most of the time, Uh, you do get a believing wife and an unbelieving husband, but not always. Let's acknowledge that. This is fascinating because this is absolutely counter-cultural that the wife in a a marriage would be of another faith to their husband. Absolutely counter-culture in the first century. Uh, This is a bloke called Plutarch, who is a first century ancient Greek historian. This is what he says about what wives ought to do in the first century. He says, A wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships. And so it was totally not on for a wife to be a Christian if her husband was not. It would follow him in all things according to the culture. And yet here we see that, Christian, that women in a marriage are converting to Christianity and God is saying, if, if you can stay there, do it. If you're not being abused, stay. If you're not being mistreated, stay. And seek to win your husband by living a life as a holy woman of God. Not adorning yourself externally, but changing on the inside to be a woman who displays something that is amazingly precious to God, a spirit of beauty from within. So there is great courage in seeking to win your unbelieving husband. And I tell you, the Bible has always been countercultural. It certainly was then, and it certainly is now. Thirdly, there is great courage to have respectful and pure conduct when you don't have a spouse that does the same. I think this is the one that grates many of us. What do I do if my husband is not treating me as it says here? If he's not leading as he ought to be? What do I do if my husband isn't laying down his life in love for me? What do I do if he is not being respectable? If he's domineering? What do I do in these circumstances? It is great courage. Now, I want to speak to something which may be on our minds at this point. Are there exceptions to this? Are there exceptions to being subject to your own husband? Well, I think we've already seen so far in our text, if we go back to chapter 2, that there are exceptions and throughout the Bible to being obedient to government, right? When God's word and government's word or law, clash, we obey God rather than man. It's the same in a marriage. When God's word and the leadership of the husband clash, we obey God. That doesn't mean that we don't honour them, but it does mean particularly, let me say this very clearly, in situations of abuse or neglect, sometimes it is appropriate to separate. The Bible makes provision for this particularly in 1 Corinthians 7. We've covered this in a teaching series earlier this year. So we must say there are exceptions, but the exceptions are not the rule. 
God's plan is that men and women would ideally, in a covenant of marriage, stay together through thick and thin, work through issues. Even if sometimes separation ought occur, they should be with the intent of coming back together. But again, there are exceptions to this. So there is great courage. There is exceptional courage in being a woman within a marriage and doing it in a way that honours God. So we've looked at a couple of things so far in this beautiful perspective. The first idea is laying down fear and recognising where these fears come from. The second, second has been looking at the beauty of courage, that there is something essentially good to taking God's view of marriage, but it does seem, and I hope you've heard this, exceptionally difficult. It seems to be a tightrope to walk on. And so the only way that we can lay down our fears and take up courage, particularly, and this, because you know, I've got to say, six out of these seven verses are referring to wives. So we're probably more so referring to wives within the marriage covenant here, but they do apply to both in various ways. To be courageous and not fearful means you must see the beauty of Christ. The Bible is always in context. Verse three, uh, sorry, chapter three here, verses one to seven, is in context of chapter two, which talks about Jesus, you know, submitting himself to an unjust government in order to win an even greater government, and to. Uh, create a new people for himself through his personal sacrifice. It is an example of a saviour leader who lays down his life, the, the great model as we see in the book of Ephesians of the husband and wife marriage relationship, that Jesus is the one we ought look to if we are the wife and also if we are the husband within that marriage. And so Jesus must be lifted up for us. We must see that this is only possible if we are like the cut flower, plugged back in to the life source. In the 4th century AD, about 300 AD, the myth of the philosopher's stone was emerged in ancient Greek culture when Zosimos of Panopolis, that's a great name, isn't it? Zosimos of Panopolis referred to this stone in which they could turn any base metals into gold and give its owner immortality. Now, searching for this stone, of course, we know, and we probably know it from Harry Potter, has been a, a subject, right, of fiction and of actual people looking for this stone throughout history. And for many, though, and no one's, of course, found this stone. I'm sure it doesn't exist. But for many, the quest for a marriage that truly displays beauty or to use the vernacular, a happy marriage is like turning base metals into gold with a special stone. It seems almost impossible. And yet we look for it. We look for the beauty. But we realise that some sort of transformation must take place between these two ordinary sinful people. For some of us, it seems like it's an impossible quest, particularly when we see these kind of instructions here a laying down, a countercultural work, a countercultural attitude, one that actually says, no, I prefer what the Bible says, one that's courageous 
in a culture that will look down on you for holding this view. Some uh, connected that the philosopher's stone here referred to the rejected cornerstone in Psalm 118. That this cornerstone that's spoken of in Psalm 118 that was rejected by men is in fact this philosopher's stone that turns ordinary things into gold, that grants immortality to those that touch it. This cornerstone is referred to in 1 Peter as Jesus. And so Jesus is the one, and I just side point, the gospel's everywhere, in every culture. It's hidden in various places. you just got to look for it. The work of Jesus, this hidden cornerstone is everywhere. This philosopher's stone, which is not a stone but a person who turns ordinary marriages of base metals into gold. Beautiful, refined, over decades, looking more and more like the love of Jesus for his church. Who grants immortality to those that believe in Jesus, the grantor of eternal life to those that believe in him, risen from the dead. It's everywhere. It is no stone, but Christ himself. I just want to take us back to earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. It says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was defeat found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That is a picture of a beautiful marriage example. Him. He is our philosopher's stone. He is not just our example, but the one in whom we trust, so that when we see what he's done for us, we can do this, because he becomes the object of our worship, our gold. Gold is an amazing metal. People from every culture are drawn towards its beauty as a precious metal. What is the fascinating thing about beauty? It draws you in. You want it. You just want to look at it because it is beautiful in and of itself. Jesus is the beautiful one. His example is beautiful. And so just beholding him, just considering what he's done makes marriage work. This is a foundation for us. So there is great power to his beauty. And I want to say this. It is only if the story of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, ascension and return is more compelling than sex in the city, that you will be able to live this out. Why do I say Sex in the City? It was a, sort of became a famous um, sort of drama comedy uh, throughout the 90s and early 2000s. And it was a show that demonstrated the ultimate in the liberation of women st- with strength and independence living in a cosmopolitan city of New York. It showed women who were in control of their lives, who were liberated from the shackles of traditional religion, living their best life now. And of course, there is, there has been a more recent season which has come out in the last few years. 
Is it beautiful to you, the view in Sex in the City? This idea of which sort of captures everything that our culture talks about women ought to do. And I want you to notice, not too harshly, I hope, that all the women in the, uh, who make up the lead actresses in Sex in the City have gotten older. Their external beauty is fading. And I want to tell you that the beauty that we might see in this kind of liberation and independence will fade because God is interested in beauty that stands the test of time. Christian marriage, as it is in this particular text and reflected many places throughout the Bible, has stood the test of time. But it will withstand another test. It will withstand the test of eternity. There is a great picture which God has given us, which is why we ought to look at marriage very carefully. Be very careful not to dismiss it, but to honour it. It's because the love of Christ for his church is spoken of as a great marriage. Where Jesus is preparing a bride for himself, sanctifying her, making her more beautiful, more like gold. By washing her continually by his blood, which forgives us of our sins, which cleanses us from all unrighteousness. By making something better to the the dross, the, the things that don't last, these views of marriage, which, I mean, we, we mentioned one from the first century AD from Plutarch, which is very domineering and controlling. We reject that as well. But it's been true in every generation. Christian marriage stands the test of time and stands the test of eternity. So how do we get over a sex in the city viewpoint and are moved by the most compelling message that God himself came and gave his life for his people and to live like that? Well, a death must occur in order to live. That's what the gospel says. A death must occur in order to bring life. Good Friday had to happen to get to Resurrection Sunday. If we really want to change our minds on these things, if we see that there's a, there is a vision of marriage which is good here, it's very countercultural but is inherently good, and we see that it comes from a, a good God who designed men and women to function in a particular way in marriage. So it comes from our designer and our creator, our loving King and God. But if we want to change our view, but we realise that's difficult, realise it takes courage, we must go through a death in and of ourselves. Saying, I lay down myself to you. I said this earlier, the only way to be, if, if you're a, a believing wife here today, or you aspire to be one, or you're looking at the relationships between husbands and wives here, and you want to honour God, but you see how difficult it's got to be, the only way to get through that is to go, Lord, I come under your authority. I place myself in subjection to you. I surrender to you. I die to myself so that I might live to him. And we have a God who did that for us. Jesus does not ask anything of you in this way that he was not willing to do himself first and on an absolutely cosmic scale. So there's great power to his beauty. There is 
a great beauty to a thriving Christian community in an unbelieving world. There is great beauty to a thriving Christian community in an unbelieving world. Let me just uh, call out a few stories for you of late. Essendon Football Club and uh, the chairman of the City on a Hill Church, Andrew Thornburn. Gold Coast Livingstone College, which made the news recently when its principal asked students if they knew an unmarried teacher lived with her boyfriend. Catholic Archbishop in Tasmania, who had to change the text he was teaching on, which was about marriage, the marriage relationship, because there was an outcry from staff and students and parents at that particular school. City Point College in Queensland who uh, got into a lot of trouble in the culture for upholding a Christian view of marriage. Just to name a few from the past few weeks. It's happening all the time. And yet God has said that we are not to put a lamp cover over our light and close ourselves off from the world. We're to be salt. What do you do with salt? You spread it around. What do you do with light? You shine it so everyone can see. The beautiful thing about light is it creates contrast. There's no contrast without light. Everything's dark. When you get light, you get contrast. And so the countercultural beauty of Christianity becomes clear when we believe it, we live it out, and we trust that God will make us thrive in it. This means that those that are Christians within this church community, as they go, I will seek to, aspire to, and by the power of Jesus Christ in me, by the Holy Spirit, live out this kind of marriage, people will be confused, bewildered, and look at your life and go, there's a beauty to it that I don't understand. And that gap where they see the beauty, but they don't understand is Jesus. This is what it says in this, in this book. It says, through the life that you live, this is a bad paraphrase, the life that you live, you will have an opportunity to share the faith that you have with gentleness and respect through the marriage that you have. Through, for the single person, the widowed or divorced person, through saying, I believe this, even though I'm not a part of it, or I've seen the, the bad sides of marriage, I believe this. People will see beauty in you because you reflect God, the beautiful one. Many will ignore it. Many will dismiss it. But some will see it and honour God, as it says in verse 12 of chapter 2, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. On the 21st of August, 1911, Vincenzo Perugia entered the Louvre in Paris and left with a small painting of a woman, 77 centimetres tall and 53 centimetres wide, and took it eventually to its country of origin, Italy. The painting was the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci. Vincenzo claimed that his motivation was patriotism, that a painting of such beauty had to be possessed by its own people. And so he took hold of that painting personally in one of the greatest art thefts of 
the 20th century. It is said that through him stealing and taking hold literally of that painting, that its beauty rose to prominence. Now, some of us will look at that painting and go, there's not much to it. And then look again, and then look again, and then look again and again and again as artists and creative people from around the world have looked again and again and found its beauty seems to grow on you. Considered one of the greatest works of art in all of history. But it seems to grow on you the more you cast your eye upon it. And for some, they realize they need to take hold of it. They need to grab it with both hands and take it home. The gospel tells us that to get true beauty, we must take hold of what Christ has done. Like Vincenzo Perugia, who was so moved by the beauty of this painting, he said, I'll just grab it and take it home with me. That's the attitude that we have to have to the good news of Jesus we are to live this way, if we are to live with a beautiful view of marriage. Whether you're into Van Gogh, Rembrandt, Michelangelo or Da Vinci, there is something about these artists that moves them from the modern art museum to the the, uh, ongoing art gallery, the National Art Gallery, which says these are timeless pieces. These are pieces that have beauty in every generation. They're not just modern art. They're something that appeals to everybody because they are beautiful for all time. And there is one marriage. You know, even the marriages we have on this horizontal plane will not last forever. Jesus said there is no marriage in heaven. We don't know exactly what that means. But we do know that things will be different there. But there is one marriage that is eternal. One that we ought look to one that we ought recognize is founded on the self-giving sacrifice of a saviour for his people and the love of the people for their saviour. People who willingly go, yes, I'm all in with this, with this person, with these people. And so that is our enduring vision of beauty And it will last the test of time, whether you believe it or not. Whether contemporary Australian culture believes it or not, it will endure because it has done. And it's not based upon the varying ideas that our current culture has. It is based upon God, an eternal, loving God who gives himself for his people. Will you pray with me? And please, if if this is something that you are really feeling the pressure on, I want you to stick around. Learn from the Word of God. Come next week and hear what this looks like in the lives of men and women as we unpack that a bit deeper. But I want you to look around you, perhaps those that are a little bit further down the track, and ask them how the life, death, resurrection and ascension and coming again of Jesus has affected their marriage. And you will see peoples whose lives are held together, not by themselves, but by God. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we want to thank you for this text.
want to thank you for a beautiful vision of marriage that is very countercultural, that is difficult for us to swallow in our time and place, and yet it is like pure gold. And so we ask you to be merciful to us in our difficulties, in our brokenness where we've failed, or where we've failed as husbands, Lord, where we've been domineering. Lord, forgive us our sins. Lord, forgive us for not honouring our husbands too as wives. Lord, for seeing things the way you see them, but trying to take matters into our own hands. Lord, guide us to be people of the cross, to be people who love and serve one another. And Lord, forgive one another as we sin, knowing that you first have forgiven us. Give you thanks this morning. We pray this together in Jesus' name. I'll stand with us as we...